0: So I think Barving offers a point of entry for the serious thinker, whether that thinker is a congregation member or a Bible college student. But he also offers your leg up on how to take that further. Bavke. 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 Bavke.
1: This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bob Hey
2: there, Bob Squad. Welcome back to uh, another episode of Bobcast. I'm Caleb Castro.
1: And I am Andrew Smith.
2: And we're uh, joined once more by Dr. Bruce Pass the Director of Postgraduate Studies and Lecturer in Christian Thought in History at the Brisbane School of Theology, a PhD from University of Edinburgh, doing his dissertation on Herman Boving. We're continuing our interview here with his new book, On the Heart of Dogmatics.
1: Bobcast. now something that you talk about some in your book is bovink's attempts to relate his method of doing dogmatics to the confession of the church and the creeds and the things which relate to that i was just curious if for our listeners um Given that I'm sure most of our listeners are confessional reform people, if you could flesh that out a little bit more, Bavink's attempt to do theology in light of his confessional theology.
0: Yeah, that's a terrific question. And interestingly, it's where the Christology question becomes acute. So in the late 19th century, we have an incredibly important book, David Friedrich Strauss's The Life of Jesus. It's published in the 1830s, but it's still an incredibly important book. He he writes a sequel, I think, The Old Christianity, The Old Religion, and The New in the 1870s. It's essentially, uh, it's a little bit like when Darwin did Origin of the Species, and then he did The uh, Descent of Man in the 1870s. it's kind of a sequel, which fleshes out some of the implications. The, The historical Jesus project is this enormous problem in the end of the 19th century. And then there's a German pastor and theologian, Martin Kehler, who hits it out of the park. Um, And Martin Kehrler single-handedly destroys this second quest for the historical Jesus with his little book, the so-called Jesus of History. And Kehler is a very, very important figure because what he shows... Is uh, that the church's confession is central to our knowledge of Jesus. Um, so, where the confessions and the creeds come into play for Barthink is very closely connected to the identity of Jesus. So, one of the things we find in Barthink is this fascinating engagement with Kela. So, in that little phrase where he says that the mystery of godliness has to be the starting point of Christology, the mystery of godliness, as Kather pointed out, is from 1 Timothy 3. It's one of the earliest confessions of the church. It's inscribed in, in Scripture. Um, and the mystery of godliness, especially if you read a little bit more widely in the context where Barving brings this into the conversation, is a reference to the deity of Christ. So when Barving talks about the mystery of godliness as the starting point of Christology, he's effectively saying that we must start with the deity of Christ as the starting point for Christology. And he's saying that we get that from the church's confession. Uh, now, as it so happens, that confession is inscribed in Scripture. And one of the things that makes it Martin Keller an interesting person to read is that he could never uphold Scripture as the foundation of theology. This was something he worked through for decades, struggling with. And his fear was that if you said that Scripture is the foundation of theology, you would be held to ransom by every little historical problem in the Old Testament. So you could end up losing the resurrection of Jesus Christ if you couldn't explain uh, what was happening with the Battle of Jericho. So Keirtha backtracks from the confession that Scripture is the foundation of theology, uh, whereas Barvink doesn't. And he sees enormous difficulties with Keirtha's decision not to maintain Scripture as the foundation of theology. And so this is where um, the kind of the nexus of confessions and creeds, Jesus Christ and scripture—it's where it can be found—is in the identity of the historical Jesus. So, where famously Kierkegaard would say that the uh, Jesus of scripture is the real Christ, Barving uh, makes the bolder statement that the Jesus of scripture is the Jesus of history. And so, this, this becomes a very important kind of uh, focal point for a lot of things that are going on in Barving's engagement with post-enlightenment thought.
1: It's interesting that you say that, because it seems to, maybe in a way, also relate to... I know this is something that Dr. Eglinton has engaged with a lot, and you also engage with it as well, the idea of two bovinks and how there's an attempt to juxtapose the orthodox bovink, the confessional creed old bovink, over against the modern bovink. And you argue in the book that that's not the case, that these things for bovink go together, and... Uh, they, are, they are part of a whole, both, both of these aspects.
0: Um, yeah, um, that's uh, really one of the more helpful kind of facets of the more recent secondary literature to draw attention to the problem of this kind of Jekyll and Hyde view of Baving. And it's it's really true that that's not really what's going on. Uh, what I suggest in the book is that we need to think of Baving as a hypostatic kind of character. So in the same way that the Council of Chalcedon came to view Christ as a single person with two natures, that this is what is going on in Bavink's thought, that there really is an attempt to bring post-Enlightenment thought and Reformed orthodoxy into some kind of synthesis. But where we see uh, the organism, in the uh, particularly in its German idealist background, uh, where we see the organism as particularly enlightening, is this idea of the unity of the mechanical and the teleological. So it's not that you don't have these two things pulsing along, these two different ways of describing things. That's very much the case, that you can describe the same thing in two ways. And that's what we see Barbick trying to do, constantly trying to, See where modernity has brought insights to reality And the Christology is a fascinating one Because one of the things I draw out is the development This development of your humanity Is a really important theme in Barving's Christology It's an important criticism of modern Christology Against the Council of Chalcedon And Barber runs with this Almost without any reflection As to whether that's a good thing or not Um, There's a beautiful quote where Kuiper talks about the seductive idea of modern Christology. And, you know, he rages against it, saying it's all pretty bad. Bavinck swallows this pill. He's very seduced by this seductive idea of modern Christology. And so what we see in Bavinck is this attempt to enfold a developmental view of Christ and a developmental view of humanity as a whole into a Chalcedonian structure into a Christology which maintains the deity of Christ. And so uh, the Christology becomes this really interesting test case for what it means to think of Bavink as a modern orthodox theologian and the relationship in which
2: orthodoxy stands to modernity. If you could actually dive a little bit more into that, into this modern Christology, how is the person of Christ driving these dogmatics? And uh, talk a little bit about some of the incarnation
0: yeah, it's a really interesting question because we have this very bold statement uh, that Christology is the centre of the system, and then in the in several several not just one several places we can find Barbing even talking about Christology as a central dogma in writings that postdate Reformed dogmatics, and it does raise this question: Well, how does this work? <laughs> And uh, given that there's quite a bit of modern Christology being poured into the uh, Chalcedonian mold, that raises an awful lot of questions about how Barber might be incorporating elements of modernity into his theological system. Um, I think the basic answer to that question is that Barber's refusal to move away from scripture as the foundation of his theology puts this very firm counter pressure against the ways that he might want to derive a system of theology from Christology. And that creates certain tensions. Uh, but one of the ways that you can see the way that Christology does order reform dogmatics is this recurring idea of continuous incarnation. Uh, so even when you say continuous incarnation, that kind of raises the specter of Hegel. And you get some very Hegelian kinds of statements, even in the first volume, which is the earliest of Reformed dogmatics where he talks about revelation being not completed in the person of Christ, but only completed in the eschaton in the church. This remarkable statement. Uh, so viewing, you know, the person of Christ as God incarnate, for sure. But the idea that revelation is not completed until the eschaton and that the locus of revelation is the church, that's that's an incredibly Hegelian kind of idea. Hmm. And the interesting thing when we look at... Um, the importance of Schelling for the organism becomes more intriguing when we realize that it's actually Schelling's late philosophy of religion which becomes even more important for this idea of continuous incarnation. So for those listeners that might not be real familiar with Schelling, he's a philosopher who keeps reinventing the wheel. He consistently kind of tears up his previous system and puts it in the bin and starts again. But amidst these kind of multiple you know, back to square one, moments in Schelling's career, there are two kind of broad moments, and that's his early philosophy of identity, which incorporates the philosophy of nature, and then uh, his later philosophy of religion. And so uh, you can see the connections to Barvink immediately when, when Schelling's appointed to Hegel's old chair in Berlin and he's very pleased about that because they weren't friends anymore. Mm. So he quite liked mm. the idea that he outlived Hegel, and he also got his old job. <laughs> what is it that Schelling does? He advertises a series of lectures called the Philosophy of Revelation, mm. and everybody is there. Everybody who is everybody rushes to hear this because this is the uh, this is the event of the century. Everybody's very disappointed, of course, because in um, arguing for a philosophy of revelation. It really is a very religious kind of project, and the 19th century kind of moved on from that by then. Um, but, but it's a remarkable kind of work, and you can see Barvink engaging directly with the philosophy of revelation in Reformed dogmatics, um, and he even cites it as the background for his own series of lectures called the philosophy of revelation. Uh, he mentions that as one of the projects that stand kind of in this narrative of ideas. And one of the things that he he does kind of think about in Schelling's religious philosophy is this idea that Christ is the content of the Christian religion. It's a very Schelling kind of phrase, this idea that Christ is the content of of history. Now, Barink will strip away all sorts of stuff out of Schelling, and he strips away some of the fundamental structures of Schelling's thought. So, but we find him kind of doing this resourcement philosophy with Schelling, and that, that that's kind of where this idea of continuous incarnation gets not so much a helping hand from Hegel, but from Schelling. When we look at what Schelling's doing with mm. the incarnation. And of course, the huge difference, though, is that Barbink thinks that the Jesus of history is God, yeah. um, and that's something that Schelling rejects. But there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff in Schelling's account of the Trinity and his account of Christology, uh, which gets kind of rolled into this kind of Christological derivation of doctrine.
2: This phrase of continuous incarnation, or even if perhaps we say at times continuing revelation, or these various things, sometimes that can, how do I put this? Uh, it might make someone recoil because yes. it, it sounds like such, uh, I mean, it sounds like such blasphemous, non-confessional, non-political language. Uh, you know, we're good reform people. First of all, we don't talk about continuing revelation. It's all in the word, right? We especially don't say continuous incarnation I wanted to ask something on some points of clarity here. For example, in the Roman Catholic Church, you might have, say, the concept of the tradition and its authority is essentially from rolling out of the church as a continuing body of Christ, in a sense. It is the continuing yeah. Christ on earth as his incarnation there. And so the church can continue to perpetuate revelation and thereby create new dogmas as time goes. Yes. forward. Now, what Bavinck is saying here, or i should rather say Bavinck is saying here... Now, he's talking about the primacy, though, ultimately, of the Word. I can't recall the place in Volume 4 of uh, the Dogmatics. Andrew and I had uh, brought it up maybe 10, 12 episodes ago or so on how you don't find the Word necessarily just in the pulpit per se. The preaching is the means of grace, and yet the Word is found—you can have aspects of Revelation when you're reading a tract or a certain uh, theological book— There's something of a continuity of the word that has its own revelatory power. I don't know if that's clear, but is this something to the effect of what he's talking about here? The word has a continuing revelatory power that makes itself known, and that itself is the content Christ.
0: Yeah, um, all of those connections are very, very helpful connections to draw, and they're the right ones. And particularly your connection to the Roman Catholic Church is quite astute because that brings in a whole bunch of stuff which is just interesting and remarkable in Barthek. So the answer is basically yes. Yes, it's a bad idea. This continuous incarnation, I think, is, is, uh, is a problem. It's actually, it's, uh, Kuiper was not entirely wrong when he talked about this, this idea being a seductive one. Implicitly, you know, this is not a helpful thing to be attracted to. So one of the things I explore is how this idea of continuous incarnation actually threatens to displace Christology from the center of Bavink's system. And that, that's just an interesting kind of irony. But yeah, there's a Roman Catholic theologian Merler, who's very important in the 19th century, who articulates this idea of continuous incarnation. And then we have Schleiermacher with his idea of you know the community and that's kind of pretty closely connected to his doctrine of the person of Christ as well in terms of God consciousness. So Bavink is kind of swimming in all of these waters. The the way he kind of gets around this is with his very developed account of how the doctrine of the Trinity informs our knowledge of God. And so we hear some of the deeper Hegelian underpinning of this because he draws very heavily on the spirit. And so it's the spirit that transfers the totality of revelation in the person of Christ to the church. As I'm sure you're aware, like in Hegel it's this it, particularly in his um phenomenology of mind or phenomenology of spirit, we see this idea of the spirit, this history of the spirit becoming conscious of its, itself and being in and for itself. So he's Bhavik is channeling all sorts of these ideas. But where it kind of comes together in terms of Christian doctrine is the idea of the internal testimony of the spirit. And Barvink develops a, a corporate account of the internal testimony of the Spirit. So not just the uh, the revelation that occurs internally when the Holy Spirit illumines us mm-hmm. and we cry, Abba, Father, uh, but this idea of the, the Holy Spirit's ongoing testimony within the church as a body. And this kind of is central to his account of doctrine as an organism, that has this developmental path and is led by the Holy Spirit. And it plays a very central role in what he understands the continuous incarnation to consist in. So ultimately it becomes the work of the Holy Spirit illumining the body of Christ. And a work that has fascinating connections to Jonathan Edwards as well, that this kind of keeps going. In the same way Edwards describes, this kind of keeps them going forever. You kind of have this kind of infinite, not infinite regress, but infinite development. So revelation potentially keeps on going forever in the eschaton and is ultimately never perfected. And that's how Bhavik can keep a clear line between incarnation and the church. So the reason that the church never kind of becomes Jesus Christ is because, you know, it's like an asymptote, like we never kind of ever quite attain to this full revelation of God in the church like it is in the person of Christ. But yeah, all of the things that you mentioned are incredible ideas and connections to draw. And probably the most important one is this Logos metaphysic of the church fathers, which Bavink kind of rides into the sunset in a huge way. And that's actually one of the interesting points of connection between orthodoxy and modernity, because in the late 18th century, we have a revival of interest in Greek philosophers, a revival of interest in the Logos metaphysic. So in Schleiermacher's deeply involved in this Plato revival, there you've got your connection between the Logos Metaphysica of the Fathers and the speculative Trinitarianism of somebody like Hegel in the first generation of post-Kantian idealists. Um, so there's just a lot of interweaving of various streams of thought. And I think the question becomes then is how successful is this synthesis? And this is where I'm much more critical of Barvink than some of the other recent secondary uh, authors. So yes, Bavink is this synthesis of orthodoxy and modernity. He is this hypostatic character in which you have a modern and an orthodox nature, if you like. But just how successful is this synthesis? In my account of Bavink, I, I question just how successful this synthesis actually is. And I think some of the areas of further research in Bavink studies simply has to be of a more constructive character as to how, how, how successful really is Barber in trying to connect orthodoxy and m- modernity in the way that he does? For me, it's a little bit like shaking up oil and water, mm. like in a nice vinaigrette, mayonnaise or something. You took. Has he made a vinaigrette or has he made mayonnaise? <laughs> if you let sit sit long enough, the oil just comes to the top. Um, so this is where I think... Uh, the two Barvinks hypothesis is certainly dead in the water. You don't have two Barvinks. You have a single Barvink who's trying to be a synthetic figure. Uh, but how successful is this synthesis? Uh, I'm not convinced that it's entirely successful.
1: What sort of impact and influence would you like to see your work, uh, particularly this book, The Heart of Dogmatics, have on Bavink studies? You kind of mentioned that a little bit just now as far as sort of checking how successful was Bobbing Synthesis. Beyond that, wh- where would you like to see this work go, and what would you like to see come from it?
0: One of the issues that I raise by way of conclusion in The Heart of Dogmatics is fairly substantial engagement with the thought of John Webster. So the fifth and final chapter of The Heart of Dogmatics begins with this delicious story of when these people were examining a doctoral thesis in Aberdeen, and they go out to lunch afterwards, and one of the doctoral examiners asks John Webster, basically, who is your favorite theologian? And he says, well, for a long time, I would have answered straight away Karl Barth. But now I'd have to say Herman Barfink. This incredible anecdote. And John Webster passed away very suddenly while I was in Edinburgh. And uh, one of my friends and colleagues is one of his students. And it just kind of really threw everything into a disarray at St. Andrews in terms of Webster's interest in Barving it's also a little bit problematic because um, he hadn't really gotten off the ground with Barvink much. So, mm-hmm. so you have a story like this which suggests that Barvink becomes a very important thinker for Webster in his own project. He had only just started to really engage closely with Barving before his sudden death. And so what I draw out in that fifth chapter is what we can see of the very late... Uh, writings of Webster where we see an incredible similarity, possibly even an appropriation of Barbering's own thought, but also where we have the resources to appropriate Barbering critically. And so what I suggest is that John Webster offers the kind of critical framework in which we can assess the abiding significance of Barbering's synthesis. Uh, So what I suggest in that chapter is ways in which Webster can be helpfully used to assess the merits of projects of Barvinkian retrieval. So the kinds of things that Webster will criticise, I think, are the kinds of things that we ought to pay attention to, uh, strip out some of these elements from Barvink, And uh, the things that Webster thought were very important in Barvink are, I think, the things that have abiding significance. So uh, I think by connecting John Webster and Barvink there is the possibility for the kind of constructive work uh, to be done with Barbink. For me, the organisms are not a way forwards. Mm. Philosophically, I think it's, it's a liability. And you look at the history of the 20th century in terms of philosophy, it's only Tillich that's running with Schelling. It's not the organism. It's the later, it's the later philosophy of religion. So I think uh, what we find in, in Webster is an appreciation of Barbing's Trinitarianism an appreciation also um, that uh, sits with his version of Christocentrism. So there's a very interesting essay that Webster wrote at the end of his life where he reflects on the value of Christocentrism. And he speaks kind of of a, you know, like a hard variety of Christocentrism or a a very um, strong Christocentrism. And then he talks about a more moderate or a softer variety of Christocentrism. And that's the one that he thinks has value. And as we emerge from the picture of Bavink that I paint, that's the type of Christocentrism you see in Bavink. I think there's some interesting work to be done yet on uh, retrieving Bavink. For my way of thinking, John Webster is probably the, offering the best help or that.
1: We've touched on a lot of various topics today, a lot of names, um, a lot of the heavy hitters of modern theology and the like, and I know for some people this can probably be a little complicated, maybe even a little confusing. I guess just uh, what might be your takeaways or your advice from what you've studied for perhaps the wider Christian community and maybe just the average churchgoer in the pews about how they approach Bavink and how they approach theology in the Church.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think certainly if I, that that probably brings me back to the beginning of my journey reading Bavink. And I think Bavink is uh, an astonishingly good model for how to do theology in that he begins with this long kind of exegetical section before he then has a survey of the history And he does all of this before he starts thinking about what he thinks about the particular doctrine. Um, I'm not suggesting that contemporary theology needs to be done exactly the same way. But this kind of movement from Scripture to the church's confession, I think, is very instructive. I think it also allows a bit of a entry point for people who might like to hear what the church has said historically about doctrines and the significance that Bavik at least sees in that historical progress of doctrine. I think that's quite um, unique. There aren't too many theologians that will give you that kind of entree in a fairly concise kind of way. As I said, it's only four volumes. Uh, if you set out to read Karl Barth, it's 14 it's six million words. It's really long. <laughs> so there's a certain conciseness um, and I think the original comment that uh, Michael Jensen made in, in our doctrine lectures at Moore College, there is a clarity to the way Barving writes, a conceptual clarity. Yes, it's an older kind of uh, stilted Dutch from the 19th century, uh, even in John Bolt's fairly uh, pellucid prose. It's still a little, sounds a little bit Victorian. Um, but there's just such a clarity in the way he expresses himself. And unfortunately, one of the, you know when John Webster died, he left unfinished a systematic theology. That's such a tragedy. <laughs> a lot of these people seem to die before they um, leave a system. But, but what we have in Barving actually is uh, a completed work. So you can kind of read what he said about everything, and then just reflect on is this helpful. So I think Barbing offers a point of entry for the serious thinker, whether that think is a congregation member or a Bible college student. But he also offers your leg up on how to take that further, because it is pretty meticulously footnoted. So you can take any of his footnotes and run with it.
1: So we've talked about already two works of yours, The Heart of Dogmatics, which has just been published by Vanderhoek and Ruprecht, and then also your translation of Bavinck's Theological Orations that's available from Brill. Is there anything else you're working on, new projects, exciting things that you'd like our listeners to know about?
0: Yeah, there's, at the moment, uh, at the moment I'm, I'm finishing off a fairly long journal article which looks at Bavinck's account of the place of theology in the university. And uh, in that article, I, I bring Bavinck into conversation with Lynn Tonstadt in her recent reflections on that subject. And that's something I have to finish off fairly soon. But uh, in terms of a longer project, I'm working with a Dutch scholar, de Kok on a series of lectures Barvink gave in Amsterdam uh, called The Foremost Problems of Contemporary Dogmatics, which is a really interesting unpublished work. So it's not published in Dutch. Uh, it's not published in English, but we will produce Dutch and English editions of this work. Um, It's really interesting. The title is very, very, very inviting, the foremost problem. So this is kind of everything that's wrong with the world, according to Bavik, his kind of summative assessment of of theology in the dawn of the 20th century. So this this post-dates reform dogmatics. So in itself, that's interesting. Um, We're still Trying to ascertain whether we have all of it. We have the 13 notebooks from the uh, Bavig archives at the Freie Universiteit in Amsterdam, um, but it would appear that that's not all of it. So, what we're trying to ascertain is whether he actually wrote more or whether it's an unfinished project. Unfortunately, the most interesting stuff is the bits that we can't get our hands on at the moment. What you do have is a torso which is. Uh, very similar to Karl Barth's Protestant theology in the 19th century. It's basically Bavink's version of that type of book, which is a kind of a, a set piece that lots of people were doing at the end of the 19th century, an account of the development of theology after the Enlightenment. That's a book-length project, so that one will take some time. That's a Bavink project that's in the wings <laughs>
1: Awesome. Well, we want to thank you for coming on with us today and talking about Bobbing with us. There's a lot of good stuff here, a lot of stuff to think about and be challenged by. Um, again, Dr. Bruce Pass at the Brisbane School of Theology. We appreciate you coming on. Any final words?
0: Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. I, I look forward to uh, hearing more from the Bavcast. I like that. <laughs>
2: That's right. Uh, Yeah, thank you very much for coming on. A lot of what you've spoken of today puts forward of why we're so interested in uh, continuing on and studying uh, Baathing specifically, just his theological precision, how he exegetes uh, these concepts. We always find it to be a very edifying, rewarding endeavor to work with his uh, theology, and uh, especially in receiving help and insight from uh, scholars such as you, uh, Dr. Eggington, among others. Um, It's very appreciated. Ah, it's great. My pleasure. Well, we are very glad for that. That is all the time that we have. We are going to go ahead and end there. But uh, once more, we thank Dr. Pass for all this time and his insight on Bob Inc.'s theological methodology here. We're running out of uh, tote zines jokes, uh, so tote zines. Tote zines.
1: Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.